Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with Phil Dave. Clive Roslin. And me, Diana Toman. Coming up, we are going to explore further the ramifications of those members of the community who decided to recite Kaddish for those who lost their lives in the recent Gaza conflict. We're also going to be hearing about a new book called The Founding of Israel by author Martin Connolly himself. And Kate Fulton will be exploring the world of the Jewish Arts Fair, which has taken place over the past week in northwest London. But before all of that, with the roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week. Here's Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the leaders of Hamas in Gaza saying they've agreed a ceasefire deal with Israel. It will hopefully end the biggest flare-up of violence between the sides since the 2014 war. One senior Hamas official, Khalil al-Haya, said that Egyptian mediators had intervened and that militants in Gaza would commit to it so long as Israel does. However, Israeli cabinet minister Naftali Bennett said no agreement had been reached yet. It comes as the UK commits to a new Gaza aid package of £1.5 million. The funding will help treat patients at 11 hospitals and provide rehabilitation services to around 4,000 people. The Middle East minister, Alistair Burt, said he was concerned about the worsening situation in the Gaza Strip and wanted the people there to know that they haven't been forgotten. He made the announcement as he visited the area. The prestigious university, King's College London, has adopted the international definition of anti-Semitism. It set out tough new guidelines in order to ensure the safety and security of students and staff at its campuses. The college's principal, Professor Ed Byrne, told the Jewish News that the criteria laid down by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance have been followed, and he and his team have had discussions to that effect with the Board of Deputies, UK Lawyers for Israel and Rabbi Lord Sachs. A poll conducted by the Pew Research Centre has found that almost one in four British people wouldn't accept a Jew as a member of their family. The report, called Being Christian in Western Europe, contains results from 24,000 randomly selected adults in 15 European countries, including the UK. Brits were the second least tolerant after Italy. And in showbiz news, the Amazon series The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is to go into a third season. The popular comedy drama is about a 1950s Manhattan housewife who ventures into stand-up comedy after her seemingly picture-perfect marriage falls apart. Viv, thank you very much indeed. Well, let's start off this episode of The Jewish Views like we usually do with a glance over your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining us to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer. And Rich, the front page, you're not singing anymore. Yeah, I have some ambivalent emotions about this story. Alison Shablos, we've been following this lady for a couple of months now. She is an obnoxious blogger on YouTube. She's a singer, a musician. She has spent the last few years of her life deliberately provoking and alienating and upsetting and plain insulting the Jewish community by singing hideous songs, uh, denying the Holocaust and making dreadful slurs about Jews and Israel, etc. So the campaign against anti-Semitism bought a lawsuit against her and a judge last week ruled that she was guilty on three counts of race hate singing these songs. Now, why am I ambivalent? I'm ambivalent because obviously I'm a fierce advocate and defender of free speech. And you have to wonder where the line is drawn.
drawn. Now, clearly, this woman is a nasty piece of work. Clearly, she has what she, what, what she had coming to her. She was found guilty in a court of law, and rightly so. She's no friend to the Jewish community or to decent, civilised society. But does this deserve a guilty sentence or not? And will she get a custodial sentence when the actual sentencing takes place uh, later on this year? People are allowed to say stupid things, are they not? People are allowed to say fish ride bicycles and Qatar should host the World Cup and and all these silly things that they used to say. I mean, you used to find these people on the back of buses and walking down the streets murmuring to themselves. And now, of course, with new technology, they have a publishing platform and they're allowed to dispense their opinions to a wider audience. Does that mean this woman deserves prison or a fine or to be found guilty of saying things that she holds to be true, even if they are absolute crazy that is a question i think really that this story can really provoke and the discussion that needs to be had who would you say is the more guilty person she or youtube well i mean she's the provoker she's the woman who's instigated this she's the one who's decided to use this platform for her nefarious means so no clearly she is and youtube along with many social media platforms facebook Instagram, Twitter, they've all been very, very slow at coming forward and self-policing. But no, of course, this, this lady has a lot to answer for. But whether or not she should have been found guilty in a court of law, I am not entirely convinced of. I do think I need to add a footnote, though. Speaking as a bit of a technology geek here, one does need to consider that when it comes to sites such as Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and all of these different social media platforms that give us the facility to express views whether we like them or loathe them. The problem is that this is obviously a high profile case. We know about Alison Shablos because of her name, because of who she is, because of what she's done, because it's all gone through the courts now. She's high profile. Therefore, YouTube would find it very easy to remove videos if they so want to and desire and believe that they break policy. However, if you're looking at someone who is a much smaller, more, dare I say, invisible individual who has a very specific and very unique and niche following, it's not as easy for YouTube, Facebook and all of these other social media sites to track them down because unless they are deliberately going out of their way to look for hate content, it's not as simple as just saying, well, make sure that you remove these videos because there are millions and millions of videos, of posts, of tweets that are uploaded every single day. So how on earth can you expect YouTube, Twitter and all of these people to go through it with a fine tooth comb and find them? Well, that's what the law is there for. But so it, when it's it comes not possible to, to find them. That's the problem. Sorry. When it comes to YouTube, then do they just leave it open to anybody to, to put whatever they want onto it? Within reason. I believe that what they have is they have terms and conditions in place that actually says to people what they are allowed to post and if they are found to be posting something that breaches their terms and conditions. Nowhere in the terms and conditions of YouTube or Facebook, Twitter, anything like that, will you find anywhere that says it is acceptable to use racist language. It is acceptable to encourage people to take out hateful crimes against other minorities. They're they're never going to say that that is okay but what the problem is is actually stopping people from doing it it's exactly the same way it's not okay to throw and i'm sorry to trivialize it but it's true it's not okay to throw chewing gum on a pavement but people still do it it's the it's the actual notion of policing something that happens on such a vast scale that it is 
almost impossible. That's the problem. Phil, do do the terms and conditions not have a prohibitive clause that you cannot, in fact, never mind that you can, that you cannot, in fact... No, I'm absolutely sure they do. But, I mean, that's that's without... Yeah, but that's without me actually reading through them. I don't know for definite. I am absolutely convinced they will do. I'm absolutely convinced they will do. But you tell me one person in the studio right now who has gone through a terms and conditions of any website they've signed up to in fine detail. I doubt you'll find anybody who actually does do that. And if they do, if they are probably of this mindset, I highly doubt that they're even going to adhere to it anyway. No, I mean, as we talk, I'm sure there are millions of people around the world and and thousands of uploads taking place as we speak that we would find have got some sort of questionable content on the subject of Atlas and particularly YouTube have been very sharp and proactive. If you do go on YouTube now and, and check her name out, you will not find much of the content and particularly any of the content that she's been got into into problems for. However, you will find lyrics to her, I, I will use the term loosely music, and some of it really is, is quite reprehensible and it's, it's quite clear why the judge decided what he did. Richard, are we keeping an eye on this story? In other words, are her fo- she can't be on her own. She's got followers. She came along with an, uh, an army of supporters who right. were cheering and booing and there was uh, clashes, not physical clashes, but verbal clashes outside the courtroom with people that were obviously opposing her supporting the state of Israel so yeah it was pretty unedifying chanting uh, it was a, a pretty ugly scene so yeah she's certainly got a, her supporters but luckily they are outweighed by her detractors okay well let's have a look at the backlash of another what some are calling ugly scene which was the result of some members of the community we spoke about this in last week's program but some members of the community deciding to recite Kaddish for those who lost their lives in the recent Gaza conflict the story continues because now I believe that the movement for reform Judaism is deciding to distance itself from one of their main organizations within it Yet not only Reform Judaism, but Liberal Judaism as well have have come out and said that, uh, well, particularly one of the the senior members of Liberal Judaism, Rabbi Baginski, said she certainly wouldn't have been on this and and takes perhaps a a dim view of it. Yeah, the ramifications of this were just extraordinary. Our front page last week was about Laura Jana Klausner, the head of the Reform Movement, saying that we are destroying ourselves as a community if, if there's no space for clashes of opinion. However... Often the opinion and and debate is 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 conducted through the, the centre ground of of a community. I think when you see anyone, uh, whether it's a young, naive, perhaps unaffiliated Jewish person in, in their twenties, or or somebody who's perhaps been around a little bit longer, saying the mourners' prayer for people intent on on killing Jews. I mean, it's, it was an extraordinary scene. It was something that I think will will live long in the minds and, and memories of, of those who saw the pictures and the video. Again, we're talking about online video and offensive video. This was on YouTube as well. But yes, both the liberal and the reform movements this week have, have come out and, and distanced themselves. And Rabbi Leah Jordan, who's the liberal rabbi who led the service, has uh, this week left liberal Judaism to go on a placement in Jerusalem. What have the United Synagogue got to say about all this? Very little. Interesting. Um, well, the, the the mainstream movements, the synagogal movements, nothing. Uh, the Board of Deputies really came out hard and said, you know, it was, it was, it was a r- wrong thing for them to do. Uh, and they were very vociferous about Israel's right to defend itself at the time. Obviously, it, it wasn't till about two or three days later that it actually came out that most of the people that were killed, 80 odd percent, were either Hamas members or Islamic Jihad members. That put an entirely different sheen on the whole thing. Mm. Board of Deputies came out and condemned it before that 
information came out. And since then, I think their position was made stronger, knowing that that was indeed the facts. But no, I think the United Synagogue are looking upon it with a, 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 a un- unedifying situation that progressive movements seem to have got themselves in, or at least the members have got themselves in. I don't think they want to dignify it with the response. There are those who might say what these people did was a very Christian sort of thing to do. Christian as in generous, as in yes, thoughtful? Well, I'm hopelessly naive would probably be another term. Certainly foolish was the word that we used in the paper last week to describe them. A lot of them probably it was coming from the right place, but in months and years to come, perhaps they might think twice. But it wasn't pleasant to see a lot of these people named and some might say shamed by individuals being used uh, and, and abused on social media. These people don't deserve that. As Rabbi Andrew Shaw of the Mizrahi movement in this week's paper says, these aren't bad people they were just a little bit misguided and i think maybe you know they should be cut some slack and i think that is exactly what we need to identify that however much there are many members of the community who clearly disagree and don't like what these members of the community have done by reciting kaddish for these individuals at the same time one does have to recognize that they were doing it for the loss of life it was not because of those who died That is the point that I was trying to make when I said it's a Christian point of view. Look, I don't think anybody would deny their right to mourn the loss of life. However, I think that's a very one-eyed view and a very simplistic reading of a really complicated situation. It is indeed a very complex situation. It does feel almost a little strange going from such a serious subject as that to something as light as this. But let's try and lighten the mood a little bit because there is some something in the way of, should we say, of lighter news out there. Love Island, that sensational, brilliant, amazing, gripping programme is returning to ITV2. Can you tell I love it? Returning to ITV2. And I believe in and amongst their midst is a Jewish contestant. What a seamless segue. <laughs> Thank you. That was not seamless, but it was very difficult to segue into that, believe me. T- tell you, the, one of the few professionals in the room. Yes, Love Island. The days are getting longer, the weather's getting warmer, and the tell is getting far, far worse, isn't it? Love, <laughs> Love Island. A, a programme I'm probably about 30 years too uh, old to appreciate, but apparently, according to ITV2, if you read the small print, so this is six boys and six girls all going on some far-flung lovely island in the Mediterranean and encouraged to, how shall we say, get to know each other better. And amongst them is Eyal Booker, who, whose mum's Israeli and he used to go to JFS. And we've been trying to do our very, very best investigative work to try and get to the bottom of it. But we've got a little Q&A question and answer interview with him. He's going to be the new reality TV star in the community this summer, starting, I think, June the 6th. It begins. So uh, set your alarms and set your video recorders for that. So, yeah, Eyal on Love Island on the 6th of June. I, I really can't can't convince myself to say anything more enthusiastic than that so it's going to end up with a mixed marriage (laughs) (laughs) possibly it's 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 highly likely although it's very very rare that these programs end end with nuptials of any kind you say that but i believe if i'm not mistaken the last series did end up with the couple getting together i believe i might be very much mistaken tell us more fan of the program sadly i can't (laughs) because i genuinely don't remember anymore but i do think i remember reading it in some Heaven forsaken paper or something like that. Anyway, Richard, this wasn't the this wasn't the pinnacle of the arts pages, was it? 
Oh, the <laughs> pinnacle. Do, I don't. I don't not aware that this newspaper has a pinnacle. If it did have a pinnacle, no, it certainly. It's not it certainly wouldn't be that. No, no. Actually, this this week's pinnacle. Thank you for mentioning it, Diana. I, that, thank you very much. We probably should mention it in the program. We've interviewed five women who have changed careers in their thirties and forties. So they've oh, studied, developed their careers focused on a certain area and then completely out of the blue decide no not for me i'm going to change my life entirely so we've got five inspirational stories of five women that have completely changed their life around well thank you very much for raising that bar just a little bit higher to end on but that unfortunately is where we have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week but editor richard farrow thank you very much indeed don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the jewish news every thursday across london or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk you're listening to the jewish views in association with the jewish news and we have with us now martin Connolly author of The Founding of Israel. That's his new book, The Journey to a Jewish Homeland from Abraham to the Holocaust. Martin, that is a huge canvas. How long did it take you to do the research? Well, this book actually started 10 years ago (laughs) and with lots of breaks in between. But then I spent the last uh, two years completing it is it actually published yet, or is it on its way to being published? No, it, it is now, in fact, on the, the bookshelves, and Amazon and all the other major booksellers that you want to try will have it, and uh, it's doing quite well. It sets out to give a chronological journey of the Jewish people from the time of Abraham to the Holocaust under Hitler. That, as I said, is, is a very, very long time. Did you, did you find that anything surprised you when you were doing the research? Yes, what surprised me was I knew that two things that, that I really focused on was the fact that I wanted to be a non-Jew writing this book because I wanted it to be not claimed that this was a biased thing from a Jew. And so I set out and then I discovered that what I knew to be Christian anti-Semitism was in fact horrific throughout the ages, and I discovered far more than I could even put in this book. And I think that's what shocked me, but also the lies and the deceit against the Jewish people over the centuries was remarkable. And in in many ways, there's nothing new under the sun. What's happening today was happening throughout the centuries to the Jewish people. In what way did it shock you? Well, the fact is that What shocked me so much was we have, I am a former pastor, and Christianity teaches, you know, love one another, uh, love the Lord your God, all your heart, all your soul, and your mind, love your neighbor as yourself. And what I discovered uh, is that this was completely not the case in the history of the Christian church. It certainly did not love its neighbor. It certainly did not love the Jewish people. And more importantly for me, it had forgotten the people in whom they are rooted and the inability for most Christians to recognize that the that Jesus Christ, who is the founder of the Christian religion, was in fact a Jew. And I met so many Christians, which shocked me, who didn't even know that basic fact. In which countries are we talking about? I'm talking about countries Germany, Ukraine, uh, United Kingdom, America. There was this ignorance of the very basis and the, the, the very lack of understanding of how much the Christian church 
had persecuted the Jewish people. Why, just as a matter of interest, did you stop at the Holocaust and not go on to the State of Israel? I mean, given that you'd, you'd gone so far, as it were, over so many well, centuries, why stop at the Holocaust? Well, I didn't stop at the Holocaust in the sense that the book runs from Abraham to the Holocaust because that is the period which demonstrates, if nothing else demonstrates, the truth and the truth that is denied by so many people today that the Jewish people are rooted, have been rooted and have always belonged to that area of the Middle East. And it's using those facts that I then go on to state the finding of Israel in 48 and then I do a 70 year review where I state my views on the 70 years. And so therefore the Holocaust is, a, is, a, is in a sense the staging that I say is the final nail that says Israel needs to have a state of its own and needs to be founded. And I, I, I argue that the right of Israel to establish a, establish a state in the Middle East where it has done so is found in history and belongs in history. And these people, the Jewish people, deserve and should be recognized to be able to establish themselves because of the history right up to the Holocaust in the state of Israel. Has it changed your perspective on Judaism at all? Oh yes, very much so. I know I'm talking to a Jewish paper, but I say this uh, with all sincerity of heart, I love the Jewish people. And my experience from being a child where I first met Jews to today has only increased my love, my respect, and my belief that all of us, no matter who we are, should stand by the Jewish people and we should join ourselves with them to ensure that the world does not once again try to eradicate these Jewish people from the earth because that has been done through every century of history and it must stop. And we must now defend Israel and make sure that Israel remains a place of safety and protection for the Jewish people. Can I just bring you back to a point that you make in the book about expulsions, the many expulsions. Now, as Jews, we're familiar with the expulsion from Egypt, but perhaps not so familiar with the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Persians. Well, this is the thing that I think the book tries to bring out, that the Jewish people were rooted and founded from the time of Abraham in the land of Israel, Haaretz. That is where they belong. Now, every century they seem to be persecuted and persecuted, and every empire that has ever existed, the Persians, the Romans, they all have tried to remove the Jewish people from their own country. And the Babylonians, the Persians, and I say the later Romans, they all try to remove and uproot the Jewish people from Israel. And it just keeps going on. And even today, this is what I find so, well, it, all, it does make me angry. There's no point saying anything else. That once again, we see the, uh, the Arab nations around Israel wanting to do the same thing. Hamas' stated view is to uproot and remove Israel from her rightful place. And I think that people need to learn the history that the Egyptian, the, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Romans, they have all done the same thing. And we must not let history repeat itself again and stand firm and insist that we, we defend Israel's right to be in the land of Israel.
are you going to take this forward in any way, having now finished the book? The only way I can take it forward, and I do, is when I'm giving talks or when I'm promoting or when I'm saying anything, I establish, and even in my personal contacts, make sure that everyone is aware of my views and to, to, to make it clear, but also to write. I will write to politicians because I believe that that is the action we can take as an individual. I cannot be responsible for a government, but I can be responsible for me, my actions, and to stand behind my own words by these methods of writing and, and speaking. What reaction would you say have you got from maybe friends and family? Because obviously, if you are not of the Jewish faith yourself, one can only assume that you have been immersed in a world that is not necessarily that of the Jewish community and therefore it's curious where your interest in this subject first started but what about those around you have you helped them to see the Jewish oh, yes. community in a different light yes. uh, I have uh, I, I was a pastor of a congregation and when I took it over let us say it, it wasn't very aware of its Jewish roots and I took the fellowship into a, a complete new different place and every one of my teachings were based on Hebraic background and teaching the scriptures believing that the Torah and that the Second Testament you know they, they stand in complement to one another and I taught my my community to respect the Jewish people brought them into relationship with Jews I used to go to the synagogue in Peterborough quite regular when they had the windows broken throughout the Semitic behavior, we went across and we supported, we repaired, we helped, because it is important to, to not only say things, but be practical. So I've always had a good relationship with the Jewish people. When I did my study in Cambridge, I, I mixed with rabbis and I mixed with Jewish people, and we had lots of good interfaith dialogue where there was a great respect one for the other. And so I, Judaism to me is not something strange, it's something I'm familiar with. And I, I've often had opportunities to teach things from a, a, a Jewish perspective, believing that that is the only way to understand how we can learn to live together and to respect one another's views. So therefore, it's not that I'm absent. And when I meet with friends and with, with, with when I was a pastor, I, I would always, even fellow pastors who seem to struggle with, I, I don't know if you understand the term replacement theology, there is a terrible wave of replacement theology which I had to fight against publicly and I've always done that with pastors and with other people to get rid of this idea of replacement theology because it's a nightmare and anathema to me and so that, that's how I do it currently. What, what is replacement theology for those who don't know? Well, replacement theology is basically to say the Jews are finished, that they have no longer any relevance in God's plans and the church has become the new Israel and therefore has replaced the Jews. It completely sort of sidelines all of all the, the, the great traditions of Judaism and says it's no longer relevant. I disagree with that entirely. The people of God are still the Jewish people. Do I detect a Northern Irish accent? Oh, Picari, you do indeed, I. <laughs> I was wondering if... Sorry, was that a yes? <laughs> I, I am from Northern Ireland. I thought you probably were, in which case your parish might have been in Belfast. 
It was, well, I, I, my, I didn't become a pastor until I moved to England, but yes, I am from Belfast and very familiar with the Belfast Christian Circle. Right. And what about the Belfast Jewish Circle? Did you find any anti-Semitism in your part of Belfast particularly that would the, have inspired you to write the book? Yes. When I was, maybe it goes back to a very early story with myself. I'm from a very poor Catholic background where we lived. My mother had a huge number of children and we lived in poverty. And I remember the first time that I met a Jew, Mr. Marx, it's in my book, and he was a marvelous man. He was charitable. He loved us. He brought us food. He brought us toys. He, he was great. And that was my first meeting with a, with a Jew. And it's always stayed in my heart that this marvelous man would help us, even though we weren't of his faith. And the second Jew I met was a, a, a lovely gentleman who was at where I brought my grandmother. He had a, an office premises and he used to keep it very clean. He used to dress perfectly and he would always acknowledge me when I passed with a smile, with a greeting. And I always find them warm. And yet within the general wider community, there was this sort of, oh, don't have anything to do with them. And that attitude always offended me, never mind the Jewish people around me. And as I grew up and in Belfast, I began to see more and more that, you know, the, the old joke they used to have in Belfast was, you know, when you stopped someone and said, what's your religion? And if a Jew was to say, well, I'm a Jew, you'd be asked, are you a Protestant Jew or a Catholic Jew? Yes, I've heard that. <laughs> that actually happened to my mother. <laughs> so you see, but this, is, this, this, this betrays the truth that the, the difficulty of people accepting the Jewish people to be themselves and respected for that. And when I came to England, I find it over here in England that the anti-Semitism was even worse. I remember coming to London and the three things that, is, that, that really shocked me coming from a sheltered Irish background was notices in windows which says no Irish, no blacks, no Jews. Indeed. But I'm afraid that's where we have to leave it, Martin. I'm so sorry. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. That was Martin Connolly, author of The Founding of Israel, his new book, out now in all the best bookshops. If you'd like any more information on any of the guests featured in this week's show, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, when it comes to Jewish art, what do you think of? Perhaps you maybe think of some very attractive piece of Judaica that maybe has been sculptured in Israel, or perhaps you think of some of the great painters out there. Whatever it is, did you know that potentially there's not really any place that exists where all of this great work can come together under one roof? That is until now. Our very own Kate Fulton has been finding out about the first Jewish arts fair. Kate. I'm in Edgware on a hot Sunday afternoon, surrounded by incredible pieces of Jewish art. And I'm talking to one of the organisers of the art fair. Your name, sir? Alan Hershowitz. Tell me what's going on here. Why are there so many pieces of art with, with rabbis and shuls and incredible pieces of fabric? What's, what's going on? 
we found there was a great need for Jewish artists to be able to exhibit their creativity and, and there's so many amazing artists but there's no outlet for them so we thought this was a good way of, of having a fundraiser and allowing people to exhibit and sell their works. And all of the artists here are Jewish artists. Are they are they local, or what? What's the criteria for being able to come? So the only criteria are that people exhibit Jewish themed stuff um, and so all the work um, should have some sort of Jewishness about them and there's a great variety from from Holocaust pieces all the way through to inspirational mezuzah it's just the most amazing stuff that's been exhibited and it's all for purchase or is it all is it for display most of it is for purchase if not for purchase then 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 copies can be made and as a few people have specifically want to just exhibit their work so and what is your organization I am a trustee on a, a charity called Art Therapies for Children and we send art therapists into schools to do one-on-one -on -one art therapy with the children. It's a very effective way of, of helping children with any emotional problem, whether it's bullying at school or whether it's a learning disability. We can help them through this art therapy. So these qualified art therapists go into the schools, which we're in 10 schools at the moment, and we help out these children. But we want to get our word out there and we want to show that it's such a worthy cause and there's such a a lack of psychological therapy that is necessary in the schools and so that's why we started off the charity. So the idea being that the children can maybe express through their art what they're unable to voice in their, exactly. with their words. Exactly, exactly, exactly and these are quali qualified therapists that can work with these children and they can actually normalize them, they can integrate them back into society through expressing themselves through art. Because sometimes children can't express themselves because it's too emotional, whereas art gives them that outlet. So. I'm looking around at some of the pieces here, and they're mainly paintings, although I can see some cloths and various pieces of, of glass art. Tell me a little bit about some of the artists who you asked to display here. Many are just local artists that live in Edgeware, and um, they are just such creative, wonderful people that have been hidden for so long, and they, and they do art as a hobby. Then there are some world-renowned artists. We've got, we got people that exhibit in New York and, and in Spain and in Israel, and we've got these people exhibiting and selling their work here today also. So it's such a wide range. Uh, it's, it's amazing to see. And you've been advertising? We've advertised a bit, um, but this is... All pretty much on our media and, and word of mouth that we've, we've got such an interest. So. And you, hopefully you'll, you'll make some sales. Tell me, what yeah. is, is this going to be repeated? Uh, there seems to be a lot, of, a lot of people who want to buy and a lot of people who want to display. This has been a test case. We just wanted to gauge and see how much popularity there was for, for something like this. And we've been bowled over. So our next aim is to get into London. We've got a gallery in, in central London that's interested in, in, in housing us and we want to repeat this again and, and invite artists to exhibit their Jewish art primarily because there isn't really a, a, a Jewish gallery as such or a way people can exhibit and, and you've got to be a well-known artist to be accepted by one of the galleries. I'm talking to Rabbi Malcolm Herman from Seed. I always thought Seed was educational, sort of one-to-one -one learning in quite staid environments. What's going on with the art here? Well, first of all, Seed is anything but a state environment, well, so you need to update yourself. <laughs> Basically, the art fair was put on by friends of Seed to raise funds for Seed. But I feel it's very much in keeping with Seed's whole ethos, which is the, the belief that God has given us talents 
and we have to nurture and develop those talents for the benefit of everybody. Seed's whole educational ethos is that every human being, every child has talents and we need to educate parents to nurture those latent talents. So I see a synergy between the two. Do you think Jewish parents, or particularly those religious, were not nurturing them in, in a creative and artistic way, but more in sort of focusing just on academics? I wouldn't say that. I think that's a bit too sweeping. I think all parents need to nurture their children and discover what their children are good at and celebrate their children through that which they, you know, through, their, through their talents. I think we can all do more on that front. And how are you feeling today's gone? It's phenomenal. It's been busy all day long. There's been a wonderful range of talent over here. There's clearly some very, very talented people hiding in the community, and it's great to see them coming forward and sharing their great skills. I'm with one of the artists now. This is extraordinary work. What's your name and what, what are you doing here? My name's Karen Keat, and I am an artist, cartoonist, and illustrator, so I have some of my more decorative Judaica pieces here. I also have some fine art paintings and I have a range of cartoon cards as well. And how did you hear about today's art and what made you want to exhibit here? Well, Alan, the organiser, asked me to exhibit my work and I always enjoy an opportunity to show my stuff and to meet people who are interested in art and to see people enjoying my art as well. What sort of, how do you describe your work? What sort of genre does it come in? It's, all, it's, very, it's very pretty and it's very glittery and yet some of it's quite, actually quite significantly religious. Yeah, so, well, this section of the work is the more decorative Judaica stuff, which so is... So I'm looking um, at the, what, the, the blessing, blessings. Sabai, the blessing for the house, the prayer for when you light the candles, a few other things there. But over here is just the more, like, fine art stuff, so still lives and still life scene of a Havdalah. Of a, of a Havdalah with the rabbi. Yeah. And it's got a very, it's a very Jewish, <laughs> dare yes. I say, a very yeah. Jewish atmosphere. Well, it is a rabbi making Havdalah, so, you know, <laughs> that kind of makes sense. And then over here, my uh, Jewish humour cards, which a lot of people will have seen in the shops. Oh, and so you're in... the one that does these fabulous yeah. cards. Oh, I my am goodness. The cards. That's me, they yeah. are very, very funny. I'm not going to spoil the joke. Some people, <laughs> people can actually buy them, but they are very, yeah. very witty. Yeah, so um, a lot of people have been coming and enjoying those and you know it's nice they can buy something small as well when they come you know apart from just the more significant purchases let's put it that way Paula Flowers is another artist and like her paintings they are many flowers here tell me how did you get involved with this with this project well Ellen Hershevitz contacted me and asked me to exhibit how have you found today very lovely there's been a lot of interest not yet any purchases but I'm just hoping what sort of paintings do you like to create? Colour, texture, all oil paintings. I love the colour and how it moves and space and depth and, you know. And there seems to be this, this painting here, yes. the Birth of Israel. Talk me a little bit through that. It's quite unusual. Okay, I came back from Poland. I went on a trip to Poland with Stan Marshall and when I came back I just needed to get everything out onto... Onto, into paint and the bottom shows the lights and the fences of Auschwitz and out of the ashes where it says Shema Israel, Israel was born. So it was my way of communicating how I felt. Incredibly powerful picture. Almost don't want you to sell it so we can keep looking at it. <laughs> well the thing is that this particular painting Seed wants 25%, but this one I'm giving 70% because it's not about making money from it, it's about finding the right place. What brought you here today and how are you finding it? My brother, the best artist 
an exhibitor here today. Okay, so totally dispassionate there. Uh, How I, have you found I, the whole exhibition? Absolutely brilliant. It should be a yearly thing. They need to expand it, make it much bigger. And it's not just us, us oldies who are enjoying today. There are also a few kids here. What do you think of it? So good. What do you like best? What sort of things do you like to look at? Just pictures of, um, just pictures of people. And what about you? I love the colours and the contrast. I think it's really beautiful, the different styles. Is it fun going to an art exhibition? Yeah, it's lots of fun. Do you like Jewish art? Yeah. Maybe you'll be an artist when you grow up. Not sure. I don't think so. (laughs) That was Kate Fulton finding out more about Jewish Arts Fair. If you would like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk On Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, at Jewish Views UK. Or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And now it's time for our Rabbinic Thought for the Week from Rabbi Ben Kurtzer from Edgware United Synagogue. Complaining is something we Jews are very good at. Throughout our time in the desert, we complained to God about many things, despite the total care he gave us on a daily basis. And although much has changed since our time in the desert, Jewish complaining is one thing that does not. Aside from my Jewish gripes, as a millennial, I could give you another dozen things that I could complain about. Yet at their core, complaints are just a form of protest, which shouldn't be a bad thing. We all complain when we want to protest injustices that we see around us. We complain about the media coverage that we feel is unfair in the hope that it will improve. We complain about our community because we want to bring about change. We sometimes even complain about ourselves to a mentor or someone similar, who we hope will guide our development. So what is the difference between complaining, which we might feel is a bad thing, and protesting, which can often be a force for good? Why is it okay to complain about some things, but not others? In Parashat Baha'u'llah, we read about two complaints among the many that the Torah describes. First, we read about a group who approached Moses to complain that they were unable to bring the Pesach offering because of their ritual impurity at the time of Pesach. Not only are they not criticized for their complaint, God actually instructs Moses that this festival, known as Pesach Sheni, the second Passover, will be available for all future generations who are unable to bring the Pesach offering at the right time. They asked for more than they'd been given, and they were praised. Yet later in the parasha, we read about another group who complained about the food in the desert. Although they were provided with divine sustenance in the form of the man, which our sages tell us tasted of anything you wanted it to, they complained and asked for meat. In this case, they asked for more, and they were criticized. When we lay the two episodes side by side, one can see a fundamental difference between the two. Those seeking to be involved in Pesach when they were unable were striving for more in their relationship with God. They were looking to maximize in a realm that has lasting meaning and value, 
In their case, striving for the best is praiseworthy. Their second group wanted more in an area of fleeting pleasure. They already had unbelievable food that could taste like anything they could imagine, but they wanted more because they weren't happy with what they had. This is something that we can bear in mind so often. What are the areas in which we look for more and protest when we have difficulty in attaining it? And what are the areas in which we sit back and are happy to make do with what we have? In deciding when to get by and when to push for more, let us bear in mind the two groups in Baha'u'llah. Is this something significant which will have lasting meaning? Or is it something fleeting whose pleasure will be short-lived? Rabbi Ben Kurser from Edgeware United Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you very much goes to our guests, Martin Connolly, author of The Founding of Israel. Thank you very much to all the guests who spoke to our own Kate Fulton about Jewish Arts Fair. Thank you also goes to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed you at home for listening. Don't forget that you can always listen to this episode or indeed any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, Jewish Views. Views.co.uk. And also, please do remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with the Jewish News. From me, Phil Dave. And me, Clive Roslin. And me, Diana Toman. Join us next time here on the Jewish Views. Goodbye. <laughs>